December 24th, and we're starting Lesson 7 on our series on contentment, and we're now in the final laps. Uh, this class is called Learning Contentment. It's the first one in this series, and what I hope to do is, with the groundwork that was laid in the previous classes, all the ditches that we identified, um, to stay out of those and stay on a high center of the road and... Today, we'll be looking very broadly at the ideas that the Bible is conveying in understanding contentment, and then we'll look at more particulars in the following couple of weeks. So today is, is very much laying the groundwork, and I want to, uh, I want to cover um, one topic to open that I think has been neglected, and we will need to investigate as we move forward. So um, that's the topic of abundance. And if you've read material on contentment written by really anybody, I'd say more than 100 years ago, you're not getting the full picture of what contentment means. You're looking at a very limited perspective of contentment. Um, We live in a world of unimaginable abundance. Unimaginable abundance. Everything is amazing in our world today. Energy, healthcare, transportation, Entertainment, books, education, I mean, you name it, everything. 2023 will go down as a year of such massive proportions of abundance that we have trouble measuring it. It's difficult to measure the kind of abundance we have. And the Puritans did not, nor could they, understand that this world was coming to them. They didn't. They lived in a different world. This is uh, Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Rare Jewel, ends that book with this quote. He says, now there is in the text, this Philippians 4.11 passage, another lesson, which is a hard lesson. I have learned to abound. That, That does not so nearly concern us at this time because the times are afflictive times. And there is now more than ordinarily, an uncertainty in all things in the world. In such times as these, there are few who have such an abundance that they need to be much taught in that lesson. Well, (laughs) what a different world that we inhabit than the one of Jeremiah Burroughs. His time was an afflictive time, and afflictive and in deprivation. That's not our time. That's not our time at all. And so we have different lessons to learn. So where does that leave us? Well, in a sense, a little bit of drift, because I don't think we can look to the Puritans to help us understand the lessons of abundance and how we can learn abundance. So we've leaned heavily on the wide body of literature that the Puritans left us on contentment. And we've learned how things have not changed in many respects to the human heart, children, parenting, what people want, all those things are true and those are lessons we can learn. But if we want to learn and think about abundance, I'm urging a little caution. So we shan't be looking to Burroughs, obviously, and he doesn't encourage us to look to him for information as it relates to times of abundance. So it's my opinion that the Puritans and that era did not possess the mental scaffolding with which they could imagine a life of abundance, let alone extended times of abundance such as would span the globe. They, they couldn't see it. It wasn't on their radar. They didn't have the mental scaffolding. When you look at the literature of economics, it doesn't really begin for another hundred years after this. It's a long time. They didn't have it. So I wouldn't trust 
a casual reading of the Puritans to be a guide that covers all the information we need as it relates to contentment. Now, I hope it's abundantly clear. I've used the Puritans throughout this entire class and quoted liberally from many of them. So we're fans of what they have to say, but we have to know when these lines should be drawn. Commerce and industry today are very different than what was experienced or even imagined from the 1600s. This is really, really important for our lessons on contentment. Now, I'll concede that you could suggest that it's possible that things like business ownership, finance, even modest degrees of labor specialization were identifiable in some nascent form back in the 1600s. I mean, people who were a blacksmith uh, were different than farmers. You know, there was some labor specialization even growing. You could maybe see the spark. But we're really stretching to be generous with what they could see. There was effectively no labor specialization like you'd see today. And so we live in a world where labor is so specialized, as a, for instance, that you probably don't even understand what your neighbor does for a living. You may have some broad idea, but uh, we have high degrees of specialization in what goes on. So I'll make the cutoff to be the early 1900s as the turning point for a world of abundance. And prior to the 1900s or somewhere around that time, let me just ask a question because I think it helps reveal what kind of perspective we draw on these times of abundance that Burroughs is referring to. How many positive depictions can you recall from history or from literature of commercial enterprise? It's all big stuff like railroads. It's all big stuff, yeah, it is. You, and and even, even those are tainted by terms we use such as robber barons. Mm-hmm. You know, the... The, they don't escape uh, the the great merchants of the world. I mean, how did people gain in prosperity? Well, you conquered nations, you exploited them, whatever that means. There's there's lots of ways that the view they had of trade and commerce and business and exchange are all very very different. Their world was not a world based on freedom. And liberty. It didn't happen. You, you weren't free to move and relocate and do what you wanted to do. They didn't have the kind of energy abundance. There, was, there were lots of restrictions in their world. Lots of restrictions. I, you, anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and so when you think about the way commerce is depicted, it's fairly negative in most of the literature, most of the stories, uh, even even the great merchants, and you look at the end of the book of Revelation, have a pretty negative depiction about them that they think the world is never going to end, they're gonna to continue to increase their wealth. Money lending, I mean, how long did it take for people to understand even the virtues, if they even do today, of money lending? It wasn't, it was always considered a predatory type of practice. It's never a positive thing. World of finance couldn't have existed back then. I mean, just could not have existed back then. And I think there's still a great degree of confusion about commerce, for instance, today. And you might think, well, those are not really the things that that we're facing in our study of contentment. What I'm suggesting is, yes, we are. These are exactly the things that we are facing. We live in the times of abundance. And Burroughs did not. So the literature Burroughs has is very much oriented toward abating of desire and abating of acquisition and accumulation. It's afflictive times. He's not the only one to use that phrase. They're afflictive times. And so we live in a different world and we require some updates to how we think about things. Um, We also have a second type of transformation that's taken place, which is excruciatingly difficult 
to quantify, and that is, uh, it goes by different names, um, different labels, or related labels. Uh, so, um, really, prior to maybe even 25 years ago, uh, much of the much of the exchange and commerce that we negotiated was done for material goods. You bought clothes, you bought things, and you exchanged them. But given the energy and computing and digital transformations of the last 25 years, how much of your world is now consists of things that are and I don't like the word immaterial, but I, let's use dematerialized. Uh, immaterial has some other connotations that are useful, but not for this discussion. You think about the world you inhabit, there's a lot of dematerialized components to your world, right? How many people stream some sort of service? They have internet access, they have email as communication, they use a computer, which is a physical device, but most of the value of that computer is not in the fact that it has a a physical characteristic, right? I mean, if you could stream it, it you might not even need that. Uh, so our, our world has changed yet again in a very short amount of time, such that people who are much, uh, well, maybe not that much older, but older than us, have a d slight difficulty in making that transformation to appreciate just how material, dematerialized the world is. I mean, everything has changed. The amount of aluminum we use in the world has changed for the better. We just keep finding ways to use less materials in everything that we do. Well, that's, that's all part of the exercise of dominion. But the point of that is, is up until very recently, our world was and our exchanges were materially oriented. And we grew in prosperity across the globe with those ideas. And now we have another transformation. So even if we thought we could bring the Puritans up to date, I'm suggesting you would have to do another addition to bring them up to date with just what's happened over the last 25 years. Things are so vastly different. So if you're reading the Puritans and learning about contentment, there is much to learn. But you have to remember they were men of their day. And they could only imagine so much about the world. So what they wrote is not entirely prescriptive for us because we have new conditions and scenarios that we have to face. And that's an important part of understanding contentment is that it's not all about living in afflicted times. Does that make sense? And it's a little concerning when Burroughs says... It's a difficult thing to learn how to abound, right? And that's our entire world. What's the definition of abound? Well, we touched on it last week. Well, if you consider the baseline, food and clothing, and everything else is considered riches, uh, how would you even begin to measure the amount of I don't think he could have wealth? imagined a $2 million building you would drive up to in an automobile that cost thousands of dollars to buy a $4 cup of coffee. He would not. <laughs> While giving you the option to drive across the other corner of that intersection to buy it at a different location owned by the same people. Yeah. Yeah. And all of it made everybody better off. It's, it's difficult to fathom what this world looks like. The amount of books. I've got, you know, I can buy books, you know, new. I can buy them at thrift stores. I can uh, buy them online. I can download them. And I've got some of these books that I'm well behind. In my, it's like I've got lots of books on my shelves or piled on my floor because I need to build some shelves. Yeah. And it's like I haven't read them all. There's... I really, really want to drive this point home that we live in a world of unimaginable wealth. Full stop. You've never had it so good. Which means we have new things we have to learn about contentment in this world. So, any other comments, Dan? I think the point is well made, but the, 
what make what is pretty common is that I don't know if anybody in here is thinking this right now, but I am. So. The wealthy that you're talking about, that's somebody who has just a little bit more than I have. Like, I, that's not me. You're, you're talking about, like, rich people. And then, and then you define rich, and it usually is like, you define old. Old is 10 years older than me, right? Well, rich is, I don't know, 50,000, some number more than I have. Those are the rich people. I think the point you're making is food and clothing and everything else, the, the level of abundance really does strike every one of us, but there's a... There's kind of a deception of the mind that's like, well, I mean, I do have a lot, but there's others, the 1% have. I, I enjoy being unnecessarily provocative. So I'll go so far as to say is you don't even know any poor people. I doubt it. Everybody you know is wealthy. Com- compared to what? We might have to get on an airplane. We'd go find a few. Yeah, that's right. We're just talking about worldly wealth right now, right? Well, we're talking about being content. There's there's lots of things to measure here. Lots of things to measure. So, is there a distinction in in abundance from a the physical aspect of it, the the cars, the access to services, and all that, and then the abundance of spiritual blessings i mean there's a there's an abundance there that burroughs world could have addressed uh, abundance of friendship abundance of, uh, of uh, time in the word abundance of relationship with god but you know and then we have a material abundance that they could not have known anything about yeah, there are many facets to our life yeah. there is and, and we you don't want to be the sort of people that only move in one dimension. Yeah. So don't despise the material world. Don't despise the dematerialized world. Right? Don't elevate poverty as a virtue. But don't dismiss all the other things that are necessary for human flourishing. So. I'm remembering a line of a movie where the characters said, Money, I hate to despise the money. Father replies, you all this. No. Yeah, there's, there's no getting around what we need. So let's, uh, let's move on to some of the, let's lay the groundwork for how we approach contentment. So if you'll recall, one of, the, one of the ideas that I was presenting early on is that contentment can be considered largely our first application from our study on meditation. That contentment is something that we initially pursue through the exercise of the mind. So we, it's a thinking man's game that we need to employ, and we need to figure out how to think about these things. So when you, um, when you go about evaluating uh, your circumstances, your vittles, the relationship you have with God, your friends and the world and nature and such, you've got to have a framework for being able to absorb all of this. And uh, Joseph Hall, he puts together that there are essentially three different ways that you can approach thinking about the world, thinking about all of these things. And the first is um, sense or by instinct. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful to ask yourself some questions. You know, what, what is it that animals think about? What do animals contemplate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not much, not much. It's, it's an instinctive pattern. Emily and I were driving, I don't know, a week ago, and there was a sign on some, I don't know, vet clinic or a pet food store, I don't know what it was, it said, no one will ever love you as much as your pet does. And I thought, my pet's so stupid, he doesn't even know he's alive, right? He doesn't. Uh, and there's no possible way that statement could be true. There's none. And, and yet, the Bible never hesitates to describe that men often think this way when they fail to consider God. So you can think about things in, a, in an instinctive sort of material way, the urges you have, and the Bible's abundant in declaring you're just a brute beast. It's fit for slaughter. That's all you are. 
And we've, we covered that at length in our class on meditation, so we're not going to cover it here, but um, it's a warning. It, it's not an invitation. Don't be a brute beast. But the second way, which is very common, uh, is what does the unregenerate man think about? Well, he employs reason. Reason is, reason is his go-to tool in the toolbox to evaluate the world and its circumstances. So they, you can investigate the world, you can draw conclusions, you can reject errors, you can do all kinds of things. You can think about the immaterial world. You think about lots of things that are all inside that scope. But the shortcoming of being merely a reasonable person isn't the tool you employ, it's what you exclude. That's the danger. So being a thoughtful person who thinks very deeply about the world in which he lives but does not contemplate why God made him and what God has said is a fool. And Paul describes that. Again, we looked at it in the um, class of meditation, so we're not going to spend a lot of time today. He said they're blind, they're futile. Their foolish hearts are darkened. We see this in, in Romans. In 2 Corinthians 2, we find the whole chapter given to how God's wisdom is hidden from unregenerate men. It's just not there. It says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's all foolishness to him. Nor can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. Jesus makes this point several times, but one in particular is in Mark chapter 4. When he describes to you it's been given to understand these parables and these mysteries. But for these others... They're not able to see it. So the, the unregenerate natural man has a lot of useful tools in his box, but he's not thinking about all the things that need to be considered. And this is where he falls short in the approach used to evaluate the world around us. Now, Hall suggests the third use is, or the third method is one of faith. And I don't even like that word anymore. It just seems like it's been hijacked with so many different, uh, so many different connotations. There's just too much baggage. Um, today, you'll often find that faith merely means things that we believe that we cannot see, we cannot prove, and we really, really hope are true. Right? That seems to be where most people are thinking about faith. So before you engage in any dialogue with people about faith, you need to make sure you're both thinking about the word the right way. And I'm afraid I don't like spiritual either. I think spiritual is just as much of a mess. Uh, and a spiritual person is probably just trying to communicate something about otherworldly and whatever all of that might mean. So I don't like either of those words. And I like teaching the class, telling you what I don't like. I don't like this and I don't like that. I'm just a grumpy old man, but that's okay. So we're going to use the word regenerate, the regenerate man and how he approaches thinking. So what does the regenerate man think about? Well, he thinks about God's word and he thinks about God's world. He's able to see things in a different light and contemplate them in a different light. So the regenerate man doesn't simply include God's word or God's world. They are necessary inputs, right? You can't think of these things without them. You just be an unregenerate man then. But there, he also recognizes the authority that's in scope for what they're thinking about. So the regenerate man is somebody who is not only considering and including God's word and God's world, but they become authoritative for him. How does he know God's will? Well, you can see God's will. How did he reveal it in his acts of providence as he governs and directs and preserves and upholds all things? It's clearly what God's will is. And how does he view the Bible? Well, the Bible is God's authoritative rule for faith and life. We looked at it. So he can conclude, even when he's having trouble rationally making sense of the world around him, he submits himself to the authority of these two ideas up here as ways in which he will bind himself and he will understand the world. So you don't want to be a beast and you don't want to be merely a thinking individual. You want to be someone who is regenerate in your thinking as you approach the, t 
excuse me, the topic of contentment. The other difficulty is this is not a one-time decision. As you're contemplating contentment, this is a decision as to who you're going to be. What type of thinking person are you going to become or to act like? And you need to do it every day. You need to wake up and you need to say, self, soul, submit yourself to what God has revealed and to what God has said and live your day accordingly. So you can't do it just one time and say, that's who I am. I made that decision years ago and somehow it fades in the background. It's an active part of your decision-making process to remind yourself to be thinking like the regenerate man ought to be thinking. We'll go on to the next section in just a minute, but we'll open it up for any comments about those three approaches and the necessity of, of renewing your commitment to those approaches. I would give a hearty amen to being a daily exercise. It's a daily exercise. And if standing in front of the mirror helps while you do it and holding yourself by the ear or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Do what you have to do to remind yourself of who you are and what authority you're going to govern your life by. Because one of the great problems with contentment is discernment. You don't know what to value and you don't know what's happening. You don't know nothing. That's the problem. So when you don't know nothing, what do you do? You got to turn to something and someone who does know something so you can get yourself back on level footing. So. The thing comes up a lot. You're right. I just, uh, Truman's work and some others, they, there's a, quite a battle here and it's not just out there, but very much in uh, in Christian circles, what you would turn to is less about what God's Word says and so on. It's more about what you feel. Yeah. That's That's right. All right, well, let's, I want to look at uh, one passage. We've touched on it a couple times in our class, but today we're going to spend the rest of the class thinking about this passage. And I find this a really interesting passage. Um, Those are the three references we just covered uh, Romans 121, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Mark 4.11 and 12 about uh, uh, spiritual things being discerned. And we looked at this Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, so we're not going to spend any time there. So we're going to look at uh, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 for the rest of the class today. And that passage reads, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, we looked at this uh, in the last couple of weeks from the idea that covetousness and contentment are at opposite ends of the spectrum. And then we discussed why that was the case. Why is covetousness why does it stand in opposition to the state of contentment and so if you got questions about that last week's lesson there was quite a bit of information about that and the clustering effect of sins and what comes about through contentment so we're not going to cover we're not going to cover that material again today but i'll point you back to that class for that information but there are five things about this passage that struck me as worth considering, and that is the instruction given, the intensification, the parallel, the repetition, and the outside world. So um, the instruction given, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. Does that make sense? When you read that, do you think, sure, Or do you think, wait, what did he just say? What's your initial reaction to this instruction? Imagine hearing this sermon on Hebrews. And he slides this comment in. Let your conduct, and what does he mean by conduct? What what does that mean? What's he he saying? Pardon? 
way of life. That's right. So let your way of life be without covetousness. And the remedy for that is to what? Be content with such things as you have. That's a tough sell. That's a really tough sell. Now, you think about all the things going on in the book of Hebrews and all the different topics that were up until that point, the first 12 chapters, certainly the first 10 chapters, you see the superiority of Jesus to every way of life that this is just downright jarring. And, and if you think of Hebrews as the sermon that is filled with jarring points, every time you turn around, you're getting, you're getting poked in the eye with something important, right? Jesus is better than this, and he's better than this, and he's better than this. Oh, and by the way, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Wait a minute, really? That seems like a pretty important statement to be making. And, uh, and so how does he expect us to do that? And I think that's what the rest of the verse is telling us. So we're going to this item number two on the intensification. Verses five and six contain two different Old Testament citations from two different books, two different complete sections. And uh, to help us kind of sense the direction, uh, the direct nature of the help that we're receiving, uh, notice how he attributes these words. He doesn't say, God says in this book or God says in that book. Instead, the preacher to the Hebrews is saying he himself has said. He doesn't want you to think that this idea was mentioned just in passive, but he wants to bring home the idea that God is talking to you directly. He himself has said. So, dear listeners, you can imagine the preacher saying, remember, he himself has spoken to you, and he has told you things. I'm not just telling you a story about the days of old. He's talking to you now. God himself is doing things. And I think part of what he's accomplishing here is removing Moses out of the picture. I think that I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. He's removing Moses. He doesn't say Moses says, or you've heard it in the days of Moses. He's part of the upheaval of the book of Hebrews is the old ways are gone. We have something better before us. But God himself has said, God himself has made a point. So what is it that God has said? He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So where does this passage come from? Well, We'll go back over to Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 6, and we find Moses' farewell speech and this transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And it says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og and kings of the Amorites in their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. The days of Moses have come to an end. It's got to be a shock for the people. Everybody, he had, they've been looking to him for decades. And he says, it's over. I can't go out anymore. I'm not coming with you. It's Joshua. He's your man. So the, the, there's a certain parallel here with this story in that Moses was no longer able to carry God's people as they move forward, and they needed to look to a new leader. They needed to look to Joshua. They needed to get their instruction from him. Understanding during this passage, not only is Joshua being commissioned to be in charge, but he's reminding him that God himself has said that he will drive out the nations, he will accomplish these things. God will make the way for you to accomplish what I promised for you to accomplish. And to the writer of Hebrews... One of the reasons why this passage is so important is that the old ways 
are being left behind again. Now, for the Deuteronomy passage, it was the old ways of the wilderness and the new ways of Joshua and this new established set of rituals that they had. But for the, the preacher in Hebrews, he's saying, we've got something new. We've got Jesus. And he is going to accomplish all that he said that he would accomplish. He is so much better than the old ways. And remember, he will not leave you nor forsake you. The same promise of a new leader, of a new way, and a new person who will accomplish what God has promised he will accomplish is being communicated to these, these believers here. And what does he say? I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. You had it good through Moses. My Moses took good care of you. And Jesus, who is the second Joshua, if you will, he's our prophet, priest, and king, and he's making a promise. You will never be abandoned. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. But the writer of the Hebrews is making a very specific point about God's promise not to abandon us. You can be content in your circumstances because Jesus has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, it's not just a promise in an abstract sort of way. He's making a very specific application to this passage back in Deuteronomy. And he's saying, we've got a high priest who's better than everything you can imagine. And he has promised that you can be content because he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. It's a beautiful picture of the power of Jesus to make you content. You have what you need. Let's go on to the third point, that of repetition. Um, the verse reads in Hebrews, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say. Do you see the second form of repetition? Did, did you hear it in there? The writer says, because God has said this, you may now say. It's kind of a weird way. We don't really talk this way. But imagine, imagine the sermon coming down to us, and he reminds us through this intensification, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say. This is the idea that I was mentioning earlier about getting up every day, and reminding yourself of what this promise is, that you can repeat the promise to yourself. I will be a thinking individual, submitting myself to God's revealed will. I will submit myself to his word. I will be content with such things as I have. I may say this is true because Jesus has said he will never leave or forsake us. So I got to thinking about this. How is it that Paul learned contentment? After all, that's the... That's the only clue he gives us as to what happened that he found contentment, is he said he learned it, right? Which implies he didn't know it at one time, and he had to grow into it. And the only other thing we can draw from what he says in Philippians 4 is that it took place over a span of different kinds of circumstances. I've learned how to abound, I've learned how to be in want, or I've learned how to be a base. So there were many different circumstances. But I think... One of the things that Paul did to learn this is he taught himself to say, I can be content in these circumstances because my high priest, who is better than everything, has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So I can boldly say, I can be content. How else are you going to learn it? I mean, you expect an angel to come down and give it to you? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Well, sure he did. And you've got the whole word. <laughs> he, he did not have an advantage. And whatever advantage you think he might have had, he communicated to us. <laughs> and as Peter says, we've got so much more than they did. So now well, re make a note to reject that comment. <laughs> right? So one of the points Paul's making as we think about these promises given, and we looked at this last week and in another lesson, in 1 Corinthians 10, he reminds us that all these things that he had just referred to in the first 
10, the first 12 verses of that chapter. All these things happened to them as examples as they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages, that, those are the times we live in. That's, that's the whole point is that everything is different now. And you can look back and think about what happened to people when they complained, when they murmured, and how God dealt with them. You can look back and see that there is a new high priest, that everything is better, and that God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, you can be content with such things as you have. Now, if you're unregenerate, you can't see this. You're never going to see what's going on in 1 Corinthians 10 as something that applies to us. It's just a story. You're never going to believe that the mere superiority of Jesus to everything has the power to care for you in such a way that you can actually be content. But the regenerate man who submits himself to providence, to God's word, can look back over these things and make that promise and repeat what the writer says. And we may boldly say, not just repeat, but we may boldly say, we can be content. The second citation in this passage comes from Psalm 118, verse 6. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look at, at these six verses together. Um, the opening, the first four, reflect a on God's people giving thanks for his mercy, and then verses 5 and 6 recount God, uh, calling on God for help uh, from those who are set on, on bringing harm. So, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. In princes. So when we think about this passage, because this is the the end, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me. What's that got to do with contentment? I mean, why does he include this section? Was it random? Did he just pull it out because he the words sounded nice, or is there something going on there? And if you think about the outline of the book of Hebrews, um, these new Jewish believers were faced with persecution. They were faced with troubles. They were faced with outright persecution or other forms of deprivation. I don't know all the things that, that they experienced, but it was unpleasant. It was difficult. And in verses 1, or in chapters 1 through 10, we see the case being made that things are different now. Jesus is better than everything else. And in chapter 11, we're reminded that there are a lot of lives who trusted in God who went before us. Sometimes you hear that part of Hebrews referred to as the hall of fame or something. Uh, and that you can look back at all these luminaries and what they, what they did. And then when we get to chapter 12, there's some, uh, the scope narrows rather remarkably, and he tells us to consider the glory of the history of God dealing with his people, his commitment to discipline us as a loving father does his own children. We're reminded of his awesome power and the unshakable kingdom that he is bringing. And we're reminded of all that. Then we get to chapter 13, and you can, you can see chapter 13 opening, well, with all these things in mind, remember to love one another. That's, that's the opening of chapter 13. To remember hospitality, to remember the loneliness of prisoners, to remember the need for sexual purity. Right? These, are, these are all the opening admonitions and instruction given in First Corinthians or um, 
Hebrews 13. Then the writer adds this instruction. um, Be content and avoid covetousness. Practical Christian life. How do we know that this can be accomplished? Because God's building an unshakable kingdom. And those who have gone before us have faced many difficult circumstances. They could be content. God's promised to discipline you as a loving father. He'll take care of you. He'll teach you. He'll show you the way. Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you as an orphan. Be content with such things as you have. Avoid covetousness. You can do this. Because this is an unshakable kingdom that our king is building. Now, I told you at the opening that Hebrews had a lot of jarring thoughts in it. But when you, when you think about the first 12 chapters and then the opening of chapter 13, what word would you have naturally put into, therefore, let your conduct be filled with blank? When he's just gotten done, telling us to love one another, be hospitable, remember the lonely. What word would you have ended that sentence with? Therefore, let your conduct be filled with what? Good works. works. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to say. It's wrong, (laughs) but it was reasonable. (laughs) What other word would have come to mind? Kindness. Be kind. Yeah. The world's a hard place. Be kind. What else? Love. Yeah. Yeah. Let your conduct be filled with love. You could throw patience in there. You could throw any number of things in there. But the writer of the Hebrews says, we have something else that's important. Let your conduct be filled with contentment. Satisfaction, happiness. Be content with such things as you have. There must be a lot of power in contentment. There has to be if it's elevated to this type of position. If this much ink has been spilled in Scripture to remind us of God's care for us, contentment has to be a valuable state of mind, well worth pursuing. Any other closing thoughts? I have a question. Go for it. Where, do, where does, like, uh, so, like, prog- like, wanting to progress, like, worldly progress kind of meet and collide with um, discontentment, like, wanting better relationship, maybe wanting a better career, wanting more education, wanting a bigger house, a room for your grandkids, with not, we're both some kind of collide with not being content with you have, but desiring to fight for a bigger retirement, but you know, thing type, not necessarily uh, material things, but you know what I mean, it could be degrees or, or just to, to benefit yourself, I guess, in this world. Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're coming to the end of the hour. <laughs> Your question is what is desire? Do you need contentment? Is that kind of question? If you have desires for things? Yeah, where do, where do we kind of get, where does that kind of, where do we kind of cross the line from can, you know, being content to not discontent, you know? Yeah. Maybe wanting a better vehicle, maybe wanting a better career. When I, I, one of the things I've felt that help is when I, I, I set out and I have certain plans and things, but I'm always mindful to say, if it be your will, Lord, because I don't want to, I don't want to just haul off and have my own to-do list that's disjointed from the will of God. So submitting myself regularly while I'm in front of the mirror holding my ear or the other ear after I get through repenting. Yeah, and, and I, I do promise we are going to cover this. Yep. Yeah. I don't know what the Greek word is here, maybe for things. Maybe importing the rest of the class and the rest of the teaching of Scripture 
most of the focus, but not all, today has been economic. You, you talked about the uh, like the non-physical things as well, um, which can still be economic though today. You made that point, but be content with such things as you have. Like that's a thing, and this is this is a thing, and that's a like there's things, there's objects, um, possessions, but. A whole realm you touched on it a little bit there, Edward, in their question is is relationships and things. Well, I just use the word uh, concepts that are not possessions, and that's not out of scope here. He's, oh he's, no, because, no, it's not. I mean, especially in verse six, right? Like he's making the point that it's not just that you'll you'll have enough food and clothing that that's included, but all the all aspects, all things. So I, I, I don't know if I have a question in there or just things here doesn't mean objects. That's right. So, it, that's right. It's not limited to it's not limited to objects. And a man's life does not consist in the things he possesses. And it and it would be of no profit. It would be complete ruin to gain the whole world uh, and all of its glory, but to forfeit your soul. Oh, it's much harder, and we're gonna we're gonna discover how hard it can be. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray.